This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Everybody, oh man, we got a big episode today. Happy birthday to me. Well, it's not my birthday, but it's a big celebration regardless. Episode number 100. And could there be a more fitting guest? Not only are they one of the biggest bands in the punk hardcore scene, not only are they some of the best people in the scene, but also a great friend of mine and the artist of the show's theme song, at least for now, State of the Union. A lot of people ask what the theme song of the show is. It is Rise Against. It is State of the Union. And that is our guest today. Tim McElroth is here. And I got to say, this is one of my favorite episodes I've done. And I think it's because we have so much to talk about. Tim and I go way back, all the way back to 2003, when Rise Against took Silverstein out on one of our first tours. And it is so awesome to see the success Rise Against has had while continuing to put out great music and still spread their message. Before we get into that, so many people I have to thank for this being episode 100. It's incredible. When I started this thing, I didn't even know if it was going to last 10 episodes, let alone 100. So this is incredible. I got to thank Mike Mowry and Matt Carter over at Jabberjaw, Nick Bunda for giving me my start. Caleb Shomo for being my guinea pig, and all the guests I've had. Amazing guests, amazing people. I've made so many friends. If any of you are listening to this, thank you so much for taking the time, being a part of this show, helping it grow. And of course, all the listeners from all over the world, keep the emails coming, keep the contact on social media up. I love hearing from you guys. Email address, of course, leadsingersyndrome at gmail.com. I read everything I get sent. I'm pretty bad at responding. That's something I'm working on. You know, sometimes people have a New Year's resolution. I'm trying to have like an episode 101, you know, new, new 100 episode resolution, if that makes any sense. So I'm going to be posting them. I think it's a good thing. For example, our Facebook page, kind of in shambles right now. I'm looking at getting that worked on. But hey, go like us anyways. And of course, some huge plans, some huge guests, and some really cool special events coming up right now for when we've hit triple digits. Last but not least, I want to thank each and every member of the Lead Singer Syndrome All Access Club. You are single-handedly the reason I've been able to get this thing to 100 episodes. The support you've shown me, the love, and of course... You guys kicking in six, nine, twenty-five, seventy-five, hundred bucks a month. That stuff really does help me keep the show going. I have so much love, so much respect. This show really is for you guys. If you want to support the show, that's the best way. Join the All Access Club. Check it out. The link is leadsingersyndrome.com slash all access. For as little as six dollars a month, it gets you in. You can have access to our beautiful community on the Facebook group. Q&A's with me every month, and of course, all kinds of bonus content. So just, I ask, just check it out, leadsingersyndrome.com slash all access. As I record this, I'm packing my bags, I'm heading down south to the Caribbean 
for a very, very relaxing vacation. I believe I deserve it. 100 episodes, what do you think? Every 100 episodes, they get a vacation. But not to worry, I will be back next week with a special Halloween episode. So make sure you're subscribed. And of course, let me know what you thought about this episode. And you know what? We got 99 old episodes to check out as well. So go back, check them out. If you like the show, please go write a review on iTunes, preferably five stars. That's another thing that really helps the show. All right, well, let's get into it. Episode 100, an eye-opening and very informative conversation with my friend, Tim of Rise Against. Being told. <laughs> Tim, what's up, man? How you doing? Dude, I'm pretty good. How are you? How's your... You just flew from... You just flew to Germany? Yeah. Yeah. I just flew from Germany. And, um, I mean, you know how that's... It's like that annoying amount of time where, like, it's not quite a full night's sleep. Absolutely, yeah. You know? And you just kind of lose six hours out of your life, and you're like, what happened? Yeah. Well, on top of that, we got here, and our driver, like, I guess he, like, slept in or something. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and, yeah, and we had to wait. Well, he said it was going to be three three and a half hours, and it ended up being oh five God. hours. So we sat oh, the in the airport for five hours with our gear. Uh, yeah, that's... so I'm, I'm sorry I'm a little late calling you. I'm, I'm, oh, my I'm, God, yeah. I'm calling you from like one of those classic German, very punk rock like alleys. Lots Hilarious. of spray paint. Uh, there, there's, I think if some dogs start barking, you'll know what that is. So, uh, that's really funny. Well, it sounds good. You got a good connection, whatever it is. Yeah. I think, I think this is working. I, I'm, I've got a, a little bit of a different setup, but, uh, but okay. dude, um, first of all, congratulations to me. This is episode number 100. Oh, badass. I feel honored. You, yeah, well, you know what? It is kind of an honor and, and to just Absolutely. to speak with you and one of my oldest friends, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, in music, really, to be honest with uh, you, I mean, yeah. um, you know, I chose Rise Against as the theme song music for the show. So it's been played a hundred times, you know. Uh, uh, I like it. The State of the Union, uh, which is a, a sick intro. You know, it really awesome. is. So well, hopefully, you're not, hopefully you're not sick of it yet. <laughs> well, well, I want to talk to you later about that. Because I, I'm thinking maybe it's time to change the music. All right. Um, but I'm going to give you some time to think about it because I don't want to put it right on you right now. But I would love for oh. you maybe to pick the new song. Oh really? I don't know. Maybe Wait. every hundred episodes, I switch the music. I don't know. Maybe maybe, right. maybe we keep. State of the Union seems to be working. Maybe we keep right. it. I don't know. All right. Well, you know, change is good. So, but you're asking me to change it to a, a non-Rise Against song. We got to pick a different band. Well, I don't know. No, it could be another. It could be another Rise Against song. I appreciate you keeping okay. it in the family. Uh, <laughs> right, right. If you got another like sick part that you think would work, maybe oh. maybe another band. I don't know, man. I'm totally yeah. open to ideas. Right, I'll, yeah, I'll, to, I'll have to mull it over. It was funny when I first started the, you know, the podcast, and I didn't really know anything about how podcasts worked. And and the, the producer, you know, that was working on it said, "Well, you better pick a song." And the first song I, that came to mind that I thought would be cool was "Too Drunk to Fuck" by the Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> Just I thought <laughs> that was like like a cool kind of theme song. Um, totally. And then after a while, I was like, "Nah, I got to go with something a little more current." And and actually, you know, I thought of. Well, who are some people in like in the scene, you know, that I really respect? 
you know, as, as musicians, as, as, as a band, as, as what they're trying to say. And to me, I mean, you guys are definitely at the top of the list. Oh, thank you, man. We appreciate that. I'm sucking up to you way too hard already, aren't I? <laughs> no, I can no. sit here all day and listen to this. It's it, <laughs> Well, we've had a lot of great conversations over the years, and, and some of them yeah. stem from one of the first tours uh, Silverstein ever went on, like like where there was like a headliner, you know, because right. I know you, you played in a million bands, and I want to get to as many of them as we can, because I love that shit, but, you know, in the Chicago days, and you'd go on tour, and it would be like, well, we don't want to play last today. Like, you know, you're in this kind of package and, and everyone's sort of rotating, headlining. Uh, but your tour that you brought us on back in 2003 was literally the first time we'd ever been on a tour. It's like, okay, this is the clear headliner, you know, you know, and you kind of brought us out. And it was actually, I don't know if you knew that, but that short run yeah. up in Canada and a few U.S. states was, was actually the first tour, real, real tour we ever had. That's, I didn't, I, I feel like I didn't realize that. It, it was also... I want to say it may have been like our first proper headline tour of Canada, or at least that part of Canada that we did. It's very possible, say. yeah. Yeah, because we, we were one of those bands that kind of, I feel like we, we stunted our growth for so long. Like we were even past the point where we were, where we were able to headline, we would pass up those, opportun- those opportunities and just take every support slot we could get, yeah. take every opening slot we could get and we i don't know it's hard to i'm sure you experience this too it's hard to like imagine yourself as a headliner after you've opened so many shows it's kind of like it seems like this daunting overwhelming responsibility where it's like well we couldn't possibly you know be responsible for the draw you know like we need to always be opening and or supporting at least and so we we put that off and we took so many opening slots and support slots yeah for so many years, but now I look back and I think that I attribute a lot of what we have to that is well, like putting ourselves in a lot of in front of a lot of people. Well, one of the first shows, actually, the first show I ever saw you guys play was in Buffalo, New York, and I believe it was Strung Out was headlining. Oh, uh, you were at that show. I was at that show, and that was a, actually a really interesting show. I'll get to that in a second, but it was I yes. remember it was Strung Out, and and of course, like to go back to what you were saying. Like, like strung out is that's a band like that's in, that's like they have so many albums and they've been like a right. staple in punk rock forever like of course strung out can headline a show absolutely but when you're on like one record maybe two records you know that's that's definitely daunting to be like well how do we put on a show like do we know how to play all of our songs are they all going to work in a flow like what right. the hell do i say to the crowd you know it is very daunting right. as a new band there's also like there's a shift in expectation that i realized after we started headlining too because like I really enjoyed being um, Rise Against and being the opening band that, that much of the audience had not heard of before. And so you walk onto stage and you are underestimated. You know what I mean? You yeah. walk onto stage and people are prepared to be disappointed in a way. You know what I mean? Because they're like, we didn't come here to see you. We came here to see the band after you, you know? And so now we have to put up with you. And so when you actually win that crowd over, it's like, wow, that was, that feels really good. Like they weren't expecting us to be good and they were impressed and this is awesome. And then when you start headlining, there's a shift in expectations where it's like, we expect you to be good. You know, we won't, yeah. we, we, we won't be surprised when you are, we, you need to be, we came here to see you. And so it's almost like, oh man, this is like, people have heard of us and they, and they came here to see us. They paid money to see you play. And it's all of a sudden like a whole different kind of, uh, 
there's a possibility you're no longer kind of like the surprise opener. It's true. It's true. And, and that's, I love that you bring that up too. Like I remember the, the early days of, of us, you know, opening tours and stuff and they'd be like, all right, you guys, you guys, I'm sorry. You guys are going to have to only play like 25 minutes. We'll be like, great. We'll play five songs. We'll play our best five songs and we'll get the hell out of there. And people will be like, huh, remember that band? Like, you know what I mean? Right. You don't wear out your welcome. You just kind of totally. give, give people what they want and you, you get the exactly. hell out of, their, out of their way and then they enjoy the rest of the show, but they remember, oh yeah, that band was pretty cool. Maybe I'll check them out. And there's nothing worse totally. than, than playing. Like sometimes now we get a direct support slot and it's like they want to put us on for like almost an hour or something. And it's like, right. man, that, that's just too long to, to listen to music you don't know. Right. Yes. That's, that's a good point too. Yeah. yeah. Especially, and if, and if you're a support slot too, it's kind of like, there, if, if, if you're a support slot, that's usually when a band asks you to be a support slot and play that long, it's kind of like, maybe we should be talking about co-headlining here. You right. know what I mean? If, oh, like, sure, this is, sure. if this is what you're, if this is what you're, you think that we should be doing every night, then maybe this is not like necessarily like a headliner slash support. Kind no, of no, tour. You're, you're been, totally right. I don't know if yeah. we've ever been actually asked to play for an hour on, on like as direct support, but we, you know, yeah, even 45 been, is, is kind of long, you know? Yeah, we've been on tours where I felt like it was like, wait, you know, I'm happy to do this for an, you know for an hour, but like, you know, this is really we're talking about a co-headline thing, you know, like we're just <laughs> we're just like support supporting you, like this and but yeah, being being underestimated is is you know it's a cool thing, you know, when you no. kind of walk out and take people by surprise, and you certainly you that shifts when you yeah when you when you start headlining your own shows. No, absolutely. Well, back to that show in Buffalo, and I don't know, oh, you know yeah, what year that was. So you came. You came to the strangest show of that whole tour. Well, I'll tell you from my perspective, and this this yeah. is kind of I'll try to give them the slow roll uh, okay. here because because I love the reveal. So at the mm-hmm. time, you know, Strung Out. I, th- I remember it was Strung Out and Poison the Well was playing too, and Poison the Well was like almost as big as Strung Out mm-hmm. uh, at mm-hmm. the time. So it was it was kind of this like, Absolutely. and you guys were like a heavier band. So it was like a, kind of a cool punk rock and hardcore show, and I think it was Rufio was the other band too. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. So. I'm waiting in line with my with my friend, and um, at the time, Simple Plan was like just starting to get big, and mm-hmm. it was a little bit of a like an eye roll thing, like the I'm just right. a kid, like it was sort of like really sugary. It was on much music, you know, in Canada, like the MTV of Canada. It was really like kind of getting like rammed down everyone's throat, and I don't want to say like it was hated, but it was very much like okay, this is like mall punk, you know what I mean? Right. But but I'll be honest, I always thought they were a pretty great band and pretty good mm-hmm. song, songwriter. So I remember standing outside in line, and I was like, oh, that's really weird that they're playing Simple Plan CD like yeah. during Changeover for these bands. Like, you know, yeah. you'd think they'd play something a little more like heavy or like punk rock or something, you know what I mean? Aggressive. <laughs> and I walk in, and no, 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 that's not the CD. That's them playing, opening the show, and they just jumped on. So right. weird. Yeah, it was it was so weird. That that day started too, I'll tell you even more. We had just um we had just that prior to that tour we hired a new guitar player. So we lost a guitar player before and we hired our friend Todd Money, yeah. who was my roommate and co guitar player in a, some other bands we played in like the Killing Tree yep. together. And um he agreed to do the tour, but he was finishing college at the time, you know. He was he was about to graduate from DePaul University in Chicago with like a computer science degree. So he's on his fourth year. It's like he doesn't want to just walk out his last semester. And he was like, "If you guys promise me I can be in 
uh, Chicago for the finals, my teacher will agree to like let me go on this tour. Okay, because I'm doing because I'm doing pretty good. But I got to be in Chicago for the finals, and we're like, okay. So we figured out the strung out tour, and we figured out that there was a day off um, right before the Buffalo New York show um, that Todd could do his finals. Uh, this was also a, a point where like none of us could barely afford our rent, much less like last minute flights to get places. You know? Yeah. And so like. He got to Chicago on the day off. We carried on to Buffalo, New York to be there. And then a friend of ours drove him after he did his finals. A friend of ours drove him from Chicago all the way to Buffalo, New York uh, to make it in time for that show at that theater um, in Buffalo. So we get there. We're just happy to see him. And he did his finals. And it's like, all right, you just finished college and you're, and you're playing our band. Like everything worked out. And same thing, the like, same experience as you. Like I was not privy to the fact that a band was jumping on the bill that day. Um, I don't think anybody was. It was all kind of a weird mystery. I mean, to be honest, to this day, I never really even bothered strung out to find out what the hell happened because we've been doing that tour for weeks, and it was just Rufio opening, Rise Against Plane second, Poison the Well supporting, strung out headlining, and all of a sudden there's a band playing, and I had never heard of Simple Plan before. Uh, Yeah, I didn't know who they were. I guess because they were getting big in Canada. That's why I knew, yeah. Yeah, all I knew is that Joe was like, Joe who played in 88 Fingers Louie was like, why, why, why is the kid from Reset here? Because <laughs> exactly. he knew he knew those guys from that band, and I'm thinking, I, I don't know either, and all of a sudden there's a band opening up, but then there was tons of like screaming kids freaking out over it too. Oh, so I, we were like, I don't remember that. I think I walked in right as they were finishing, but that's that's okay. that's such a weird dynamic. Wow. Yes, that yeah, it was like it was definitely like a lot of kids who had come in to show just seasonable plan. And we were just largely unaware of the phenomenon that was simple plan. And so the whole thing was like, that was our, our introduction to, um, to that whole world. And then I think they just kind of took off. And then all of a sudden our tour, uh, you know, our show just continued from there on out. Just continued. Yeah. You just went on about your, about your tour. I I I think I remember, I don't, I don't, I don't know what that was, but it just happened. I think I remember you having some kind of guitar problems that day too. Absolutely. I I love that you remember it. And I hate that you remember that too. Right. Um, It was like, yeah, I remember it was Todd actually with our guitar player, and I think his head went out or something. It was he had had such a long day anyway. He just his college oh, yeah. finals, and he drove from Chicago. I felt so bad for him. It really wasn't his fault. Just the just shitty equipment, and um, it went out. But I remember, I remember laughing about it because our our best friend Jeff, who uh, played bass in the Killing Tree, who's the guy who drove him from Chicago to Buffalo that day. Jeff was on the side of the stage smoking a cigarette. And as Todd's shit was just falling apart, Jeff was just sitting there looking at him and not helping him at all. And I remember thinking, like, what the <laughs> hell, dude? What are you doing? Like, we're failing here. It's all falling apart in front of Buffalo, New York. Please help us get this shit together. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I almost like I almost like want to say I remember that specifically too. Um, oh yeah. You know, it's always like that awkward moment when you're at a show and like you see something go wrong and like you know, you know how a guitar rig works, more or less, right. or how a, yeah. a cymbal stand. You know, you can put it back up, and like when it falls down, and like, you know, or yeah. it's like, or when you're watching a band, and like someone like throws something on stage, and the tech is just kind of like looking off into space, and you're like, right, the bass player's about to trip on that shoe, dude. Like, go totally, get out yeah. there, get it. <laughs> uh, well, and especially, I'm sure you know too. Like in your early days as a band, like you know, you can't afford quality equipment. You know, no, you've got a bunch of like hand-me-down stuff you know that was barely working when it was in your rehearsal space or your, or your basement and then you start taking it on tour and exposing it to like everything from like below zero freezing temperatures to like 
extremely hot, like desert temperatures of Arizona, and it's getting sure. bumped around in your trailer, and you have this Marshall head that just like is getting tossed around. So <laughs> you end up going on these shows, going to play these shows, and it's like your head that you spent your last thousand dollars on yeah. is crapping out because it's getting beat up, and you can't afford a proper a proper road case for it. You know, I know. so you have all those kind of the, the fact that shows like that happen, you know, is somewhat of a miracle. You know, if they ever do. Well, I'm not endorsed by Marshall or anything, but I will tell this quick story. Yeah. Uh, we were driving one time in Michigan, middle of the winter, and we hit some black ice, and we, we spun mm. out. It wasn't too serious. We were going pretty slowly. I was driving, actually. And we spun mm. out, and we kind of went into the, not into the ditch, really, but kind of into the, like, there was no guardrail. Just, I don't know what you call it. Just on this kind of in the middle. So yeah. the inertia from, I guess, the van spinning around, we had barn doors on our trailer, and our gear just went all over the road, all over the highway. And this is really early in our career, so we couldn't afford road cases or anything. Right. Uh, and we had, no. I had this. It was actually my head that I let our guitar player Neil borrow a JCM 900. Mm. And this yeah, Marshall absolutely. JCM 900 rolled out into the uh, snow onto the highway. Uh, we had to run out and go pick it up so like a truck didn't run over it. Right. It was full. Like the thing was packed full of snow. Like it didn't have that that you know that like gold metal grate on the back of a Marshall. Yeah. It didn't have that. It's so uh, all the snow is literally just packed in there. So we kind of just like like used our hands to get the snow out of the amp. Whatever. Right. We're all you know oh we were pretty shooken up. We went home. We went to practice. We we're like, well, that amp's fucked. Turn right. it on. Never sounded better. You're kidding me. It that's was insane. fine. It was fine. That's it's just so random how that shit works, right? I you know. Have, have no clue. Have you ever have you ever heard? Our mutual friend Juan Coyar. Have you ever heard I Juan's? love Juan. Uh, his uh, what? Have his... you heard his his black ice story? No. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna try to tell it as best as I can. I'll keep it short. Uh, we were on our first European tour of um, with Sick of It All, and um, so we were out there with them. I'm in line and catering somewhere like Belgium, maybe with Juan. I'm right behind Juan. He's in front of me in food. He's chatting um, with the catering lady. Um, Turns out she's American, I think, you know, and um, they're having a conversation and he's asking her about what it's like to live here, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And she mentions, and I'm kind of just eavesdropping in the conversation, right? I'm not part of it. I'm still like, right. I'm still getting, I'm still getting my salad together and one <laughs> down the table, like with it on his main course, you know? And so I'm just eavesdropping and she says something like, you know, it was one of the interesting adjustments was the black ice. Um, and I'm this crazy look on his face, like, what? And she's like, like, black ice, like, just everywhere you go, black ice. I wasn't used to that, you know, driving around and black ice. I just, I didn't know how to, how to, how to deal with that when I first moved here. And I'm here in the conversation and I look at, and I'm looking at Juan. He look, he looks kind of confused, a little bit like, you know, quizzical slash like offended. And he goes, well, that's, that's interesting. You know, I'm from Chicago and, there's just a really diverse population of all kinds of people of, of all of all colors where I'm from. So I find it strange that you were that uh, that shocked by the by. And I'm listening. I'm like, and I finally walk in after watching this awkward. And I'm like, Juan, she's not saying black guys. She's saying black ice. And he's like, oh, oh. that's so, amazing. I know it's amazing the lost in translation kind of things that uh, happen. That's that's too funny. Yeah. Oh man! Shout out to Juan. Is he still in mm -hmm. Australia? God, I love that guy. Yeah, I think I'm going to see him in like uh, 
February. I see him, oh, man. you know, not not often enough. Well, back to you know, back to what you're talking about. You know, what you're talking about this show where you're on a bill. You're like, you know, second of four, strung outs headlining. They're getting a little bit older, but they're still doing okay. Yeah. Did you ever have in your wildest dreams that Rise Against could go to where it's gone? No, absolutely not. And to be honest, like I was just never very careerist about Rise Against oh, at any at any point. You know, right? I guess part partially that came from I think being from Chicago. You know, you don't have a lot of like delusions of grandeur coming out of that town. You know, it's like we're, we're not, not LA. Not we're, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we're not LA. We're not. New York, you know, we're not a coast fan. Um, we were, I'd come out of like, um, I'd gone to a lot of different shows and was a part of a lot of different scenes in Chicago from like metal and hardcore, everything from like vegan straight edge, you know, crazy earth crisis stuff to like, I loved like Cap and Jazz and um, all the bands like that that were coming out of Chicago. Yeah. I loved Peg Boy. Um, and so Rise Against kind of towed those lines in a lot of ways, you know, we didn't really fit into a lot of that stuff. Um, and then as the band got momentum, we certainly, you know, gathered our, our own sort of humble following, but the bands that were really taking off around that time were bands like Poison the Well and Thrice and Thursday and, and Taking Back Sunday, um, Jimmy World, yeah. like a lot of that stuff. And I never, those were all friends of mine and I loved those bands. I love those bands. I just thought like, but we're just kind of this scrappy punk band and that's not really that's not for us. You know what I mean? Like I can see why an AR guy would call Thursday or thrice, but they're not going to call us, you know? And it was something that we watched. We watched our, um, our peers sort of, you know, pass us by, but I, honestly, it's not that I even really aspired to, cause I didn't think of it as a reality. I didn't, I, I didn't think I was hearing like what rise against was doing on the radio. So I didn't think there was really, um, a place for it, but being part of the fat family, that was kind of, you know, this crazy accomplishment in and of itself. Sure. You know, the day, the day Fat Mike called and said, I want to sign your band. You know, and he said that before we had even played a show yet. You know, we had a, we had a, a demo that we put together and then we had a series of false starts, like where we lost members of the band before we even played a show. Um, and so we had like a year of just kind of like these false starts. And so before we even played a show, Fat was like, I want you to be part of this family. And that was such a, it was such an incredible thing for us because it really, it, it would inform like who we toured with, like the, the, things like that strung out tour that you saw that was like strung out tickets under their wing and being, being like a fat band, you know, like, uh, sick of it all taking us to, uh, uh, Europe was, you know, sick of it all was on fat records at the time. You right. know, no effects took us out. No effects took us out on our first, uh, Western Canadian tour, you know? So, we really felt like, holy crap, this is cool. And these were all bands that I grew up listening to. You know what I mean? Like I had totally. the, the fat music for fat people compilation was on heavy rotation in every single one of my friend's cars. You know what I mean? And so <laughs> too, man. It was, <laughs> totally. it was a phenomenon. It was a scene. And, and it also gave you guys a legitimacy that yeah. all these, these kind of older bands were taking you out and, and you know, you, you were developing that fan base. Totally. Yeah. And I feel like when Rise Against started too, we were playing a lot of like hardcore shows in Chicago. And so I was, I, I knew that the label we would decide to go with would definitely inform the way people saw our band, you yeah, know? Totally. And instead of just being like another hardcore band, like I think having the fat label on our record 
it sort of challenged the listener a little bit to see like, oh, this band's a fat band, but they don't necessarily sound like a fat band if there is like a fat sound or at that time there kind of was, you know, and it, it didn't really just lump us into like this like hardcore band world either. No. You know? And we were, we were at the time, like we were giving demos to uh, Nitro, Hopeless, Fat and Victory Records, you know, and Victory um, was a Chicago label, you yeah. know what I mean? And so we were very much aware of Victory. They were having a lot of success with a lot of really cool bands like Snapcase and Refused um, and Voice It's Fire. And like, and the reputation around Victory nowadays hadn't yet bubbled to the surface. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it wasn't something that, that was a label that you were to be leery of. You know, I'm sure this yeah. is a whole separate podcast for you, Shane. But, oh, I've talked um, about <laughs> Victory. Anyone who's listened to my podcast week by week knows how much I've talked about okay. Victory on here. Tons of Victory bands. So this won't be news right. to anybody. Right, totally. Well, I will say that we were we were trying to get signed to Victory. You know what I mean? Like we were like we were thinking they would sign our band, and I thought, you know, I think there was a Chicago phenomenon too, where like big punk bands, and when I say big punk bands, like me bands, like Idiot Fingers, Louie, like when they would break up, they would start another band. Those bands would inevitably be smaller than the band before it. Right, of course. And I was like, I was like, how does Rise Against overcome that? How do we? How do we sort of? break that pattern where our band won't just be half the size of Eight Fingers Louie. And part of that to me was like, maybe a, ba- a label like Victory yep. would legitimize this as more than just an ex-88 Fingers Louie band. But because then I, you I, go to the label that 88 was on originally and then left to go to Hopeless. Right? And that's so, true. So it's almost like in, in some way, and it's not really, it was almost like a step back. <laughs> yes, it was. Because, yeah. Cause, well, well, I will say that Victory passed on us. Okay. They, they didn't, they wow. didn't offer to sign our band. Damn, they, they're they, picking we gave the demo now, huh? Well, they said no, which, you know, we can probably count our lucky stars for that. But like, um, and fat was, I think, I think fat, hopeless and nitro were all willing, but fat was the most enthusiastic and this, and then we ended up on fat, which was great, but I definitely thought we're never going to shed this X idiot fingers, Louie tag, yeah. you know, like I long day when that flyer finally just said rise again, not just. Rise X. Against yep. featuring members of 88 Fingers Louie. Not that I have anything against 88. It was kind of like, we're our own band, you know? Sure. Like, and we deserve to be well, uh, taken seriously. It's funny, you know. Fat might hurt that. I had Dennis on the podcast just a few weeks ago. Dennis, oh, nice. Dennis from 88 Fingers Louie. And he was, he, yeah, was t- yeah. he actually said, well, he first of all, he spoke very, very highly of you. Said you're a great dude, by the way. Um, yeah, we, and we were talking around Rise that time against. that, we were talking around that time that 88 was starting because I knew Dennis, um, and I was kind of like, Hey, what am I getting my, you know, he was intimately familiar with Joe and Dan and, yeah. you know, he was, 88 was a band that had their own internal drama band that, you know, broke oh, up yeah. like two or three times on the road, you know, with yeah. these epic breakup stories, you know, people punching each other, quitting the middle of tours. And I was like, am I like, Dennis, am I walking into a trap here? What's going on? <laughs> And right. He had some great. He had some great advice for me too. You know, it was it was really cool, and he kind of gave the whole thing his blessing, um, which was exciting. He did say though that that I guess there were some '88 demos that he heard, and he was like, ah, I don't know if I'm like really feeling this stuff, like whatever. Mm-hmm. And then he said when he heard the unraveling, he's like, five or six of those songs were like those demos. With with Tim singing on him, you know what I mean, mm. and it's like it's it's just funny, and he kind of says like, I mean, of course for him, 
obviously it's a completely different band. You're completely different people. Right. But he's always like, he was probably like kicking himself, <laughs> jealous of you. And then you're starting this band being like, well, we're never going to be as big as 88. So it's Absolutely. a really funny, it's a really funny thing where you have two singers like kind of jealous of each other. Yeah. And, and Dennis is a much beloved character in Chicago. Sure. Was then and is now. He's this charismatic frontman, you know, like people, a lot of 88 at that time was probably, you know, our biggest punk band. They were the only band yeah. that was on a national label, like Fat or International Label, only band that toured Europe, you know, that was like, that was like our, our legit band, you know, and so Dennis was for all intents and purposes a rock star. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking, I got to fill the shoes. Like I got to walk in and I got to fill the shoes that people are expecting to see Dennis Buckley on stage are going to get this like shaggy haired, skinny kid screaming into a microphone, you know, about like politics and stuff. Yeah. And like, I don't know how this is going to go over, you know? And I, it's funny cause, um, I never saw any fingers really play a show before, you know? Um, I never, I never really even listened to 88. So like what I, and what I did here, I knew Dennis had a great ear for melody and I love that stuff. And I love yeah. the songs so who Joe was writing a majority of that stuff. And they like, they were, they were great songs. Um, but like, I think that helped me because I took an approach to those songs that was my own and that wasn't necessarily influenced by anything that had, totally. had come before. So Totally, totally. Wow, I love how in-depth we're getting here with some of this stuff. But um, Yeah, sorry. It's probably no, some no, nerdy no. like, pre-band kind of like ah, we'll stuff. We'll get to no, other no shit too. But, but you know, it's funny you bring up Fat Records and I don't want to touch on this too much longer, but like, I'd say like 2001, yes, Fat Records, Skate Punk, that scene was still like pretty big it was definitely big mm-hmm. for me i was about 20 at the time but then i'd say 2003 when you guys put out your second record it was starting to fade pretty fast like like you know you bring up thursday and thrice and and, and taking back sunday those bands were starting to be huge and they were really taking over you know the whole emo movement and dashboard confessional and all that mm-hmm. stuff. all the punk rock had kind of disappeared and somehow you guys found a way to align yourself with a lot of bands that weren't, you know, to, I, don't, I hate to say this because I like it's my favorite genre, but like dying skate punk bands. Do you know what I mean? Right. A dying genre. You guys were able to break away, and, right. and I I don't really know how you did it, but it was <laughs> it was it was impressive. I don't even know if you really knew you were doing it. I mean, I definitely knew that like I that there was something in our DNA that was different about what we were doing. Um, than everything on like fat roster, you know, and then even just being like a little bit younger than a lot of those bands too. I knew I was, I was from the same world as like Jeff and the Thursday kids, you know what I mean? And like all the thrice kids, like I was like, that was my kind of age group. Those were, that right. was my kind of music. Like, yeah. um, I was in the voice. It's fire crowds. You know what I mean? Like I was going to see great. I was going to see, <laughs> Snapcase, I was going to see Refuse. That was, you know, I was at, you know, a lot of a lot of those shows, and so I feel like that kind of it, that that helped kind of create the identity of Rise Against, and then going on tour and pushing to go on tour with bands like that, you know. So we weren't just as much as we loved like all the Fat Records tours that we were a part of. We could also go and open up for Voices Fire. You know, we were also opening up for. Um, Thursday when they were getting bigger, you know, and playing shows with like the movie life. Um, and so we were dancing between both scenes, yeah. you know, we were also 
opening up for Agnostic Front TSOL in the business. Nice. You know I mean? I'm wearing a TSOL so like, hat, hat right at the moment, actually. So are you? I that's, am. That's that's amazing. Um, yeah, it's funny because I'm here in Cleveland on a day off, and Agnostic Front is playing tonight. So I think we're all going to go over there and check it out. Fuck but yeah. I, that's one of my more vivid memories of like my whole career is being on stage at the Agora Ballroom, opening for Agnostic Front, and just being heckled for like 30 minutes straight by like skins and, you know, Liberty Spike punk kids, you know, and like people just wanted to kill us because they came there to see TSOL and the business and and uh, Agnostic Front. But wow. I think actually when the, and when the business dropped off, the casualties picked up, you know, and we were the, <laughs> and we were first of four on this, by the way, we were first of four on that whole tour. And so like, I feel like we branched out. We were jumping from Mad Caddy's tours to TSOL tours to Voices Fire tours, you know. So we were putting ourselves in front of a lot of different audiences and just showing people that there's more sides to our band than maybe say like just the label on the back of our of our record. And we I think we managed to convince people that we were we were our own thing. No, absolutely not. It's awesome. And and like and Fat was Fat was branching out too a little bit. They were they signed yeah. you know Anti Flag. They signed. Against me, they signed a veil. They signed uh, a sick of it all, all around that time, which maybe doesn't sound like a huge branch out nowadays. But at the time, it was kind of like, holy shit, you know, sick of it all is on Fat Records. Sick of it all, absolutely. Sick of it all was a big, a big thing. They're like, oh, they're they're, they're going to sign hardcore bands now because they never really had any hardcore bands. It was there was a wave happening in the early two thousands like that. That was like, oh, this is this is they're signing like really cool bands and the sound is changing. Yeah. Um, and they're taking risks and this feels a part of what we're doing. So I got to ask you about this major label thing because mm. I, like you were, you were saying like, I don't, I could never hear my voice on the radio. And to be honest too, mm. I like, I, it was a, the biggest head scratcher for me too. We were on tour and you said, and the news came out or whatever, like, yep, yeah, we signed a DreamWorks and we're going to mm. be on a major label. And, and you're, and I remember we were sitting in a diner, like in New Jersey, all of us. Uh, hmm. and, and I just remember like my face dropping and you seeing my face and going, it's probably even weirder for us than it is for you hearing it. <laughs> but how did that call get, how, like, how did they find out about your band? How, how, like, how, how do they hear this music? How do they go? Yeah, we want to sign this band. Like it, it just seems so peculiar. Yes, I, I agree. We were, we were all taken by, it, it was like, um, like I said, a lot of our friends were signing. But they were different kinds of bands. You know what I mean? Like exactly, yeah. Like it was like thrice was going to be the next Deftones. Like so was Poison in the Well. Like Thursday and Take It Back Sunday. You know, like these were this made sense. Like emo was blowing up. Yep. You know what I mean? And those guys. There were, were no were, bands on oh, Fat Records that that did that. I mean, against right, me, yeah. I guess later on, but that was different too. Totally. Yeah, and we put out Revolutions Per Minute on Fat. Fat was like super as much. They liked the unraveling, but like when we were delivered Revolutions Per Minute they kind of like their, their whole tone changed. You know what I mean? They were like, this record's good. Like, I remember, I remember fat records being like, we have radio calling us to play your record. And we don't even have a radio department here wow. at the label. Wow. You know, we don't even know how to, we don't have anyone. They actually hired somebody to start trying to field radio requests and try to like push it to radio. Cause they were like, this is actually stuff that wants to get played on the radio. Um, we, we were like, that's cool. You know, but we didn't think anything of it. And then, this is also a time to bear in mind that like none of us have cell phones except for a Joe. We don't, <laughs> we don't have a manager, you know? Yeah. And if you want to get a hold of rise against, it's like pretty much 
Joe's cell phone number or like rise against the hotmail.com. <laughs> exactly. Something like, yeah, an email address. You know what I mean? Like we, we were, we were just in a van looking at maps, trying to get to the next show. That's what we were doing with our day. You know what I mean? So whatever yeah. was happening in LA or Hollywood, we were largely unaware of that. You know what I mean? And I would, I would, um, I would actually credit our booking agent, Corey Christopher, yeah. um, who picked us up, you know, when we were playing for nobody and has been with us and she's still our agent to this day. I think and it's, as you tell the rise against story, by the way, our whole band has always been run by women. Our whole team has always been women. It's been like Great. almost all exclusively female team. And we've had nothing but success with all of them. But Corey was booking Avenge sevenfold, um, against me. Um, she would go on to book like Gaslight Anthem. You know, she books Imagine Dragons nowadays, you know, yeah. but she's just always had an ear for, <clears throat> for good music. And when Avenge got signed, and I think, Somebody, oh, Yellow Card. She's always, she always, she always booked Yellow Card too. Avenge got signed. Yellow Card got signed. Somebody else on her roster got signed. And finally, someone in Hollywood said, uh, this woman knows what she's talking about. And her roster is full of great bands. Wow. Who else is on her roster? You know? And that was the impression I got was that like people want to know who Corey was booking. And then, well, Corey's like, why have this band rise against? And then next thing you know, it's getting passed around. And this is all happening without our knowledge, by the way. It's just kind of like, we're just, playing in punk squats in Italy with like sick of it all while like <laughs> our, our records getting passed around these labels. And all of a sudden, before you know it, like we go to Europe for like six weeks and we come back and Joe's got all these voicemails from like A&R guys. And we're like, they want to come see us when we, when we hop on the warp tour uh, that, that summer. And we're just thinking, is this for real? Like, is this really, is this really a thing? And could we ever even leave fat records? And so all of that started happening and we were, not totally, it wasn't a totally foreign thing to us. We had just finished a tour with AFI when, yeah, yeah. right before the, it was the, it was, uh, the Art of Drowning tour. And so that was when there was a different A&R guy at every show for them, you know, kind of whining and dining them. We had just finished a tour with Poison's Fire right before they signed to Wind Up Records. Yeah. And so there was a different A&R guy at every night for them. And so all of a sudden that started happening to us. We would show up to these towns. And by the way, we're still in a van and trailer. We're still playing for a max of like 500 kids. And all of a sudden, A&R, like management, people just start, you know, calling us and, and saying, oh, I'd love to sit down with you guys. And so wow. we, we kind of, we just kind of agreed to do that. And then we didn't know what would, what would come of it, but we agreed to, do it, to start looking at all our options. It's, it's, if you're in tech, you've been there before. Feeling the pain of hiring a freelancer or new employee for designer development only to find out months later that it's not a fit. And those types of mistakes aren't cheap. Instead, Mutual Mobile, a digital technology consultancy, uses the process it's developed over the past 10 years, delivering over 600 client projects to ensure your fast and beautiful mobile or web app is finished on time and within budget. Mutual Mobile has built apps for numerous companies that have been acquired, such as Eero, acquired by Amazon, FlexDrive, acquired by Lyft, and MapMyFitness, acquired by Under Armour. You get a dedicated team to help you with your tech project from start to finish, from ideation to product shipment to maintenance and everywhere in between. Mutual Mobile designs and builds beautiful mobile and web apps that increase the value of your business. 
If you have design or development needs, schedule a free 30-minute consultation at mutualmobile.link slash LSS to get started. That's M-U-T-U-A-L-M-O-B-I-L-E dot L-I-N-K slash L-S-S to get started with your free consultation today. I just got sent awesome new wireless earbuds from Raycon. I opened the box, opened up my phone, and literally in less than a minute, I was jamming out to my favorite tunes. What struck me right away was how well these fit and then how amazing they sound. Definitely more bass than my other wireless headphones. But the biggest game changer is the price. The E25 earbuds they sent me start at half the price of other premium wireless earbuds on the market, have six hours of playtime, and really are super comfortable, whether it's music, conference calls, or binging this podcast. And there's no dangling wires or stems to distract other people if you're on a video call. The company was co-founded by Ray J and celebrities like Snoop Dogg, Mike Tyson, and Melissa Etheridge are just a few people obsessed with with Raycons. Whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to, not the other distractions from the room. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds, but before you drop hundreds of dollars on a pair, check out wireless earbuds from Raycon. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash LSS. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash LSS for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash LSS. For me, it's interesting too, because back then I think everyone viewed you guys as this very forward-thinking political punk band, lyrically important, trying to get your message out. Um, even your name, Rise Against, you know, even your mm-hmm. name in, in and of itself, which you probably don't think about anymore, is like, it's the theme of the band. Right, so yeah. how, what was that like being like, oh my God, everyone is going to call us sellouts. Not only right. like, not only is like this label probably going to drop us because it's not going to work because no one right. thinks this is going to work. But once right. we're on a major label, it's very hard to go crawl, come crawling back to Fat Records and have all those people... You know, you're talking about, oh, you're, you're probably having a great time in Italy playing with Sick of It All and the Squat and all this mm. stuff. That's all going to go away if you decide to take to go down that road with DreamWorks. Was that a hard decision? Yeah, especially, we. you know, I talk about like bands that we were touring with at the time we were all signing, um, and one of the bands was Anti-Flag. So we were on a tour with, it was No More Black opening, Against Me playing second, Rise Against supporting, Anti-Flag headlining. And Anti-Flag were just signing to RCA. You know, yeah. And I was there on like Warp Tour when like Rick Rubin came out to like hang out with like Justin too and all those guys. You know, and like I'm watching A and R sort of come in and talk about Anti Flag. I'm thinking, how are Anti Flag going to sign? And then they signed, and then we went on tour with them. And then Austin against me just gave them shit the whole tour. You know, just like <laughs> we had so much fun. And like little did we know that like eventually yeah. every band on that tour would sign to a major label. <laughs> you know, but like <laughs> at the time. At the time, Rise Against and Against Me were both just like punker than thou, and we were just having a good time, just like kind of jabbing those guys a little bit. Um, but when you saw them do it as well and, and you saw the, what the process was, it made us feel like, well, if we found a situation where we were comfortable, we could still do things we want to do, then why wouldn't we do it? Um, but I, I looked at it the same way you just said. Um, and I remember having this conversation with um, some of the guys in Poison the Well during that Strung Out tour 
where I was like, man, are you guys really going to sign to Atlantic? Like, is that, are you serious? You're going to leave like Trustkill and go to Atlantic? And one of the guys was like, uh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to, we're going to put a record out on Atlantic and they're going to hate it and they're going to drop us. And then we're just going to go back to Trustkill and keep making records. And that's kind of, <laughs> and that's like, that's our plan. It's got to be I mean? Ryan that said that. Cause that sounds like, <laughs> that sounds <laughs> like Ryan's Ryan. voice right there. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't want to out him, but it was absolutely right. Yeah, he's yeah, one yeah. of my favorite like, people. <laughs> he is but, hilarious. He's, oh, yeah. oh my God. He's, he's the best. Um, yeah. And so I was like, you know what? That sounds like a good plan, I guess, you know, obviously what you risk in that process is credibility, which isn't to be honest, not something I thought about a lot as a 23 year old kid. You know what I mean? I didn't think about credibility as like this, as this thing that you have or you don't have. I just thought, you know, we're just, we just play in this band and we are who we are. And I trust our instincts, you know, and, I guess if credibility came along with that, I didn't realize how, how fleeting credibility can be, you know? Sure. And so I, I wasn't that forward thinking. So I probably didn't even consider how huge of a risk that was, but being like a music nerd and a fan of music. And so like, I'm not a stranger to all the major label horror stories. You know what I mean? Like I've, <laughs> sure. re- I've read the, I'd read the, the Steve Albini's piece on major labels when I was like, you know, 18 years old, you know, like this was all like, ingrained into our system like major labels are bad they will ruin your band everything bad will happen and we kind of went into it with those sort of open eyes and i guess that sort of that education of what a label is and we said we still were like let's do it and that's when we found um the guy ron handler at dreamworks and we really liked him um ironically i'm here in cleveland that's where we met ron handler was here in cleveland uh he came to a warp tour. We played a side stage for about, you know, maybe 200 kids came over yeah, and this, yeah. this, this A&R guy came over and from DreamWorks and he was like, hi, I'm Ron. I'm from DreamWorks. Uh, do you guys want to go talk? I, I have a hotel room over here and <laughs> all this, hotel all, every, room. Yeah, so and, and we were, I know. Yeah. He's like, he goes, have, and we're like, we looked at him and we're just dripping in sweat. You know, warp tour. we just pushed our, we pushed our gear across like a parking lot back to our trailer. Yeah, of course. And we just, we're just like looking at him and we're just like, does your hotel have a pool? <laughs> and he's like, what? I'm like, does your hotel have a pool? He goes, uh, uh, yeah, I think it has a pool. I'm like, let's go. We're going right now. <laughs> Take us to your pool. And we all like, got in like this pool at like some like four seasons hotel where we're just like this guy's never going to sign us but we're at least going to swim in this pool in the middle of this hundred degree day on warp tour and right. make him buy us dinner and, and whatever but in the end we really liked him he kind of not only did he assure us that like obviously things like creative control would always be intact but he loved rise against he liked who we were yeah. you know what i mean he wasn't uh, that was a good thing about our band is that there was no false advertising you know what i mean if you want to find a band that you can mold and change and, and tweak their image and, and and send them songs that somebody else wrote. There were probably lots of willing partners for that, you know, that, that kind of contract. Um, we were a band who already knew who we were, you know, yeah. and we made no bones about this is who we are, but he liked that, you know, and if, if nothing else, I had great conversations with him about like, how can we make Rise Against more confrontational? Like, how can we ruffle feathers <laughs> even more? Like, that's what right. that's what he liked about our band. Right. So I thought, well, this is not the conversation I thought I'd be having with an A and R guy, but this is this is really cool. Well, um, and that's and then we, we then we signed. Talk to me about Swing Life Away then, because that uh, the, on your major label debut, that's obviously mm-hmm. the the acoustic song. It's poppy. It's accessible. 
and that was pretty much for a lot of people that was the the, the gateway song. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That that sucked everybody in. Uh, like, yeah. was that a song? Was that was that a song that you guys wanted to have? You wanted to have a song like that on your record? Was the label pushing for that, or was that just completely just no? This is a song we believe in. That was such an anomaly. I it is an anomaly because you you know you've I, done some yeah. stuff since like that, but before that you hadn't really. Right, and to be honest, I wrote "Swing Life Away" right right around the unraveling, um, but I don't. I wrote it with no agenda. I wrote it just as a song that just fell out of me in one day, and I remember writing it, and I didn't know how to record it, and. Neil Hennessy from the Lawrence Arms, some of my best friends, and he lived down the street from me, and he had a, uh, a four-track. And yeah. so I called him up, and I was like, can I come record this song on your four-track? He was like, absolutely. And I went down to his, his apartment, and he and I recorded it with him, you know, and then I, I kind of left, and then that was it. And I remember playing it for the guys, and they were like, oh, like, that's cool. And we were all kind of on the same page, like, that's a cool song, but, but we're Rise Against. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like there was never—I never tried to push that on the band. I never tried to like sell it. Uh, like we should do this. It was just kind of like I kind of wrote this song. I'm kind of proud of it, you know. But it's not really a thing, you know. It's just something I wrote, and that was it. And then I actually recorded a version of it during Revolutions Permitted uh, with Bill Stevenson and Jason, and we and we did that only because Fearless Records approached us with their Punk Goes Acoustic compilation. Ah, oh, wow. Yes, shortly after the unraveling, and they said we want to put you on our punk clothes acoustic compilation. And I'm looking at the unraveling, I'm thinking there's nothing on here that would sound good acoustic. Which I was, I've been wrong because now I do ever changing and stuff like that. <laughs> sure. But at the, at the at the time, it was like there's nothing on here. Like we don't have an acoustic song. We're not an acoustic band. And then somebody was like, Tim, what about that song you played us in the van that you recorded at Neil's? And I was like, Oh yeah, like maybe we could dust that off and like give that to Fearless. And it'll just be like an original song on the Fearless Cup. And that's exactly what we did. And Bill and um, Jason recorded that for me during the Revolution Per Minute session. At no point did we ever consider putting it on Revolution Per Minute. And then from the Fearless Cup coming out, it kind of took on a life of its own. And like, I didn't even know that, actually. It. I didn't know it was on that comp. Yeah, it was actually, it, it's actually a slightly different version if you like, want to get nerdy about it. Right, right, sure. yeah. it's, it's missing like the bridge in the middle, like it's like an instrumental bridge. Because it was kind of like, I always called it more of like a ditty. You know what I mean? It was kind of just like a few parts thrown together. Yeah. Um, but it was like hardly a real song. And then when we went to go do our major label debut, Siren Song of the Counterculture with Garth Richardson to be released on DreamWorks, um, both Garth and our A&R guy, Ron, had heard Swing Life Away yeah. and said, this is a great song. And we're like, oh, thanks. He's like, like have you considered re-recording it and putting it on this record? And we were like, well, no, we, you know, we didn't. We kind of put it out and it did its thing and that's it. You know, It didn't change our lives. It's already, it was already out there. There wasn't, <laughs> there, wasn't, there wasn't overnight success with the Fearless compilation for Rise Against. You know, it was just sort of like, oh, there's that. Um, and we'll let you guys re-record it. And so, Garth Richards and listened to it. He goes, this is a cool song, but it's far too short. Like, there's something you're going to add to it. And like, I remember taking an acoustic guitar on his back porch and just kind of like writing that instrumental part in the middle of it and then going and re-recording it with Garth. And then it came out, which I think is an, uh, uh, an interesting part of Rise Against Story is that we did two indie records, um, which did not like blow up our band overnight. 
but it certainly got, got us a cool following. Yeah. We did a major label record on DreamWorks. I think it came out on Geffen eventually because DreamWorks folded before we even yeah. finished it. Um, and the two songs that ostensibly launched our band into like a larger musical following were two previously released Rise Against Songs. Uh, one being Give It All, yeah, which came out on the Rock Against Bush compilation at least a year prior, if not more. Yeah. And another one being Swing Life Away, which came out on the Fearless Punk Goes Acoustic. So two comp tracks were the two singles on our major label debut. So strange. And that's how people were essentially introduced to our band, which means a lot of things. But one of the things it meant for me, it was it really sold me on the power of a giant label, you know? Right. Because we already we already wrote these songs. We did our part. We put them out in the world, and and our lives didn't change. And then we re-recorded them and gave them to somebody who's got an office in like ten cities around the world. And then our lives did change. Sure. So, and, and I'm sure there's a million other factors in there that you could you know that you well, could talk about. But it really was like, wow, this is like two previous previously released comp tracks, like just started the story of this band and it happens all the time i mean if, if like the angel was on that record it probably would have been a huge hit too that, you know I mean, that's mean? a good point too uh, yeah right you, you know because it was in another band another chicago band is fallout boy i mean think of their first record there's so many hits on that first record that mm. would have been huge hits in their career if they'd come out right. later there's no doubt in my mind but it was yeah, on a, at the time fueled by ramen was a was a real like a, a small label when that you know yeah that first record came out absolutely know? yeah it's all kind of like a timing thing and you know you just you just never know yeah that's that stuff is so interesting but I mean at this point you know we're talking still about these days and they're always the kind of the glory days and it is it is a wild story thinking about you know the young days but now it's like you guys kind of keep very consistent you guys have put out a lot of records. You had you had something like four gold records in a row, all on major labels. Your band continually grows its fan base. You're doing bigger and bigger shows all the time. I couldn't believe the last time you know when we hung out in Toronto. You're playing at the shed in Toronto, and it's like I don't know fifteen thousand people there. Uh, I mean, shout out to the Deftones too, but like absolutely, it's 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 pretty wild how you guys can just maintain this, and it seems like you guys just. Okay, when you know every couple of years, every few years, whatever it is, we'll put out a new Rise Against record, and we're going to do it all over again. And people come out in droves, and they just love what you're doing. What, 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 like, what's going through your head now? Is this just like, are you like, can we do this forever? Do we want to do this forever? <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? It's just, it's just like it's right. been, it's been a long time of this now. It's been a long time of it. Yeah, and there's a lot of that. It's like there's a lot of like, can we do this forever? Or it's like, when, when will this stop happening? When, when will it stop showing up? You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, it's really, it's consistently rewarding to see people kind of still giving a shit about our band and still coming out to, to these shows. Um, and nights like that night were incredible. Rise Against is a, we're like a weird band too. Cause like there are some cities where like, we're like a legit arena band. There's some cities that we'll play like, you'll, we'll play your 1800 cap club, you know? Um, yeah. and so it, and that goes for like all around the globe too. Um, but the fact that yeah. we're we've been here for now like eighteen years, you know, eight records deep. Um, our front row has always been about sixteen years old, you know, <laughs> over the last eighteen years. People are still getting introduced to it. Like that's 
that stuff is cool. That's the stuff that kind of keeps your band young was when you realize like this thing that might be old to you, you know, this thing that might be like something you've been doing for a long time is, you know, we just played Niagara Falls last night and it's like, it's brand new to everybody in that front row. It's brand new to the, to like the 20 or so kids I met after the show by the bus, like that were like, I just heard your song for the first time last week, you know, right. now I'm at your show and now I'm getting into your stuff. It's like, holy shit. Like there's a whole, there's a whole catalog of records that you might like and you might get into. Um, I, I don't know what to attribute that success to. Um, but like a lot of it, I think is that there's an audience hungry for the things that rise against sings about, you know, there's an audience that's out there that looks for music that is, talking about what's happening um in the world that is asking questions you know and i feel like that's something that's even beyond our control is that the world is creating this appetite um sure that music music fans want and then if if most of the stuff you hear on the radio is not asking hard questions is kind of like if anything just ignoring the questions it makes us even more of an anomaly you know and i think that there's a there's a niche audience for that kind of anomaly there is, but it's also it also kind of blows my mind too, because when I see Anti Flag, okay, play a Warp Tour on the side stage, and I love I love Anti Flag so much, and they're yeah. saying all these things, and, and they're very pointed about what they're talking about. You know, you know how the band is, and there's like 400 mm, kids there, and I feel like all 400 of those kids, for the most part, are all on the level, and they believe every single word that they're saying, or they agree with it. Yeah, right. I'm going to say when I'm at a Rise Against show and we're in like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a, a southern city where you guys are, <laughs> yeah. are, are still a big band because I know mm. some of the, some of those, like you guys are huge in like Denver and you're huge in California and you're huge in Chicago, but there might be some pockets, you know, the south when you're not as big. But like, let's say Texas, for example, I'm sure you guys do well there. Mm. You got to know when you step out there, probably half the crowd doesn't agree with what your politics even are saying. Oh yeah. So how is that? How do you deal with that? Like, like, is that weird for you? Is it? Does it make you more vocal? Does it make you less vocal? Does it? Like, how does it change your, your perception of yourself and and how you perform? Well, that's a great question, and you're right. You know, um, it's going out there and realizing that, like, you know, there are a lot of people in this audience that wouldn't really even like me if we met in a bar. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so like, you don't hang out in a lot of bars, to be honest. Right, and that's true too. You know me too well. Shane, if you met me, if you, that's, like, I guess we, we we wouldn't even meet then. I if guess. you ran into it's it at like a Whole Foods or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that was something that Rise Against had to confront as our band was signed to a major, um, getting introduced to this whole more mainstream crowd of people who are also coming to our shows, getting played on the radio. So people who are not necessarily diehard, like fat wreck fans or like rise against when they come to our shows, but there was also people who just knew one song or two songs, you know, yeah. um, which was especially awkward. If the one song they knew was swing life away and they came to see our band, <laughs> sure, they got course. like, they got like a little bit of a different, uh, a, a different side of us. Um, and at first it was like, frustrating and it felt weird you know like felt like do we belong here like i don't even recognize this audience anymore um i was also a kid who grew up going to see rage against the machine and i saw nirvana play back in the day too and i was aware of that like this audience around me are people that beat me up in high school 
You know what I mean? <laughs> and but they love but they love Kurt Cobain and they love Zach De La Roca and like how do you square those things? You know? Um but I think one of the things that, that helped me kind of navigate that was realizing that um sometimes the critique that you get as a band like Rise Against or a band like Anti Flag really is you always get the scene to the converted critique, you know? Yeah. Like you're out there and oh you guys are just kind of like everyone here is kind of an echo chamber and you're just reinforcing what people already believe and your preachers are converted of how much are you really doing? Um, which I think can be a valid critique. And when all of a sudden you started pouring in fans who did not agree with what we were saying, who were at odds with what we were saying, all of a sudden that critique went out the window. It's like, of course. Uh, yeah. Like now this is the antidote to that critique. Yeah. Let's, bring in people from the outside world who have never had their choice of entertainment on a Friday night, start talking about the war in Iraq or like gay rights or like racism, inequality, or have like in between stage banter that might make them uncomfortable, you know, instead of like, is everybody getting high tonight? You know, like it was like this, we, we were, people were visibly uncomfortable with our shows, you know, and there were times where, Especially at the height of like the war in Iraq, too, where it was anti-war sentiment would eventually get, gather momentum. But with but it, well, at the beginning of the war, it was not a popular thing to say, even in a punk show. Yeah, um, and you were immediately the sort of like this like unpatriotic, you must hate the troops kind of like you know demon. And we you know we were good, people would threaten to beat us up in the back alley after the shows. Um, and so they're in like lies the challenge and it kind of made rise against a lot more fun uh because instead of preaching to the converted we were now putting water where the fire was right we were going to these radio shows we're going to these places where we had our core fans but we had a lot of people who were not used to to hearing this and that i enjoy that challenge you know there's something in my dna that likes being a thorn in someone's side. I don't know what it is. You know what I mean? Especially if that someone is like the establishment, you know, there's something in my DNA that I feel a responsibility not to make this place a completely safe, comfortable place, but to be a place where you walk away, maybe thinking about what I said or mad about what I said, you know? And so giving me that audience was just kind of like renewing the rise against. It was like, I found whole new reasons to be in this band all because the radio had brought me a new audience and it was, it was a lot, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And and if you go back to those days and you didn't even say this when you were considering signing to DreamWorks, but bringing your message to a bigger audience at that point, you know, I mean, that had to be a factor too. Yeah. You know, that's the way I saw it. I I saw it as like the label was just simply a bigger megaphone. It was just like, how can we, let's get this stuff to where it belongs. You know, I, I love playing, and songs in the punk and hardcore scene. I think that there's a, I, people call it preaching and converted, but I think there's like a place to be, have that message reinforced. Like a show can be like a rally cry, a place where people come together for support and sanctuary. You know, I don't see anything wrong with Absolutely preaching not. and converted. Absolutely. Um, but the label, but the label, you know, having and, and being, becoming a band that people would just kind of come out to see us casually, that made everything even more exciting and more fun to me. Hell yeah, man. I love this. I love this talk. This is uh this is great. A couple more things. Yeah. 
Um, this is the Lead Singer Syndrome podcast, so we do talk about our voices sometimes. Oh, right. And if you hear it in my voice, I have like some kind of cold, and I'm just starting this tour, and it's the worst. Mm-hmm. And I remember yeah. when I saw you in Toronto, you were talking about how you know you kind of you're kind of hard on yourself. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of your own worst critic about your singing, and I got to say, you're one of the best. I think in terms of a, a guy that sings and screams, I think you're one of the best. How's that been for you over the last, you know, better part of a 15 year career? Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's been crazy and a bizarre and probably a really boring story to anybody. <laughs> uh, well, we have a lot of nerds here, that listen to this show. You'd be surprised. All right, good. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's like, it's a changing thing as I'm sure, you know, you know what I mean? Like, um, I've never really had like a proper vocal lesson or proper vocal coaching. I'm um, certainly when I was when I was younger. Like the only the only way I really learned how to sing um, when I was young was that uh, I'd play in a room with my friends and everybody had, you all, everybody had enough money for their own instrument, right? You could get yourself your yeah. guitar player bought a guitar and they bought an amp. Your drummer had like a cool hand down set. Your bass player had a rig that he stole from the church down the street, you know? <laughs> sure. And then like, but nobody ever had money for a PA. No. You know what I mean? No. Like what an insanely boring way to spend money, you know? And then nobody wanted to be responsible for having a PA. So like chances are what you sang out of was your guitar player's first amp, you know? Yeah. Or another he, church down the street it. bass amp you stole. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, and lo and behold, it was not loud enough. You know, Never. and so when playing with playing with friends, it was like, if you want to be heard over the drums and over the guitar and the bass, you just had to sing loud. You just had to be really, really fucking loud. And that was kind of the only thing that I think that informed um, my singing. And then my voice has just kind of uh, changed over the years. It's such a strange thing. Like I would love to know more about it one day. But um, just seeing, hearing my voice from like old records. To hearing it today, uh, even just singing the same songs, you know, like I'll play Cleveland tomorrow and I'll sing songs that I wrote when I was 23 years old, you know, and I can feel the way that that feels different. Um, but it is like your voice is kind of an extension of your own health, I think, you know, and yeah, you have you have to be healthy in order to do it. You can't just slack off and like be an unhealthy person because um, I think like it'll all kind of trickle down or trickle up to like your voice so i just try to stay healthy i do a lot of like warm-ups and uh, cool downs and and that kind of thing i never think i'm good enough you know on <laughs> no, stage i never think that i play a good enough show on stage i always wish it was uh better but like when it's all working it's all firing all pistons there's like there's nothing better than that. right right there's always that guy though in that band that like is a total piece of shit stays up all night Drinks, yes. smokes cigarettes, does whatever <laughs> he wants, and he's perfect every night. And you're like, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I know. And I'll be honest, like, it, it, I I ask these same questions that you're asking me to other singers too, and it's always like the greatest singers who have the vague, the vaguest answers. You know what I mean? That are just kind of like not uh, Vic from Pierce the Veil. Have you talked to him? He warms up for like no, an hour I, before. He's a guy. Yeah, to talk he to. seems. He seems like he's got a whole like routine of like things that he yeah. does. Like I'm watching him like work out in the stairwell and like he's always sipping something strange, you know. He's and, incredible like, good, though. He's an incredible singer. That's what it takes, I think, for some like and I, and everyone's different too. I think there are some people, like you just said, who will go on stage after being up all night, you know, and just nail it. You know, and I'm super jealous <laughs> of those people. You know, like for me, if like I can't stay up all night and do that, you know, or I have to 
do a good warm up before I go out there. I can't just hit it cold. You know, I got to yeah. stay hydrated. I got to, I got to do all those things or I'm letting the audience down. But I feel like it's my responsibility to do that too. It's like, if you're going to come see us and pay money to see it, it's my responsibility to like, you know, spend the day before my off day, like kind of like chilling out and making sure that I still have a voice, you know? And at the same time, I still want to be able to live my life and have fun. You know what I mean? And like be out there and, and see the world and, and not just stay cooped up in my hotel room, like huddled around a humidifier. You know? <laughs> of course. So right? like, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the challenge. There's all, yep. There's exactly. all, all back and forth. I, it's funny. I'll tell you these. I've, I, the two, like two singers I met that are probably like some of the biggest deal singers I met, uh, Chris Cornell. And I've sang on oh, stage geez. with him a couple times for uh, his solo set. He asked me to come out and do Spoon Man one in uh, Australia, and then I also did wow, Temple really? of the Dog with yeah. I did uh, I did Hunger Strike with him once in London. Just like random, like we had off like you were veteran, like you were veteran, and he was uh, yeah, like yeah, yeah, I was veteran. In fact, he had to ask me. He goes, "You want to be?" He goes, "Do you want to be me, or do you want to be, or do you want to be Eddie?" <laughs> and I'm just like, man. Well, first of all, no one, no one can be you. Like maybe like. <laughs> If you get Robert Plant in here, so I'll stick with the uh, the Eddie part. But that was definitely one of like the you know it was definitely one of like the pinnacles of just like doing this was like being on stage with Chris Cornell and singing like a song like Hunger Strike, you know, with him was pretty pretty God. amazing. Do you keep in and touch remember, with him when like well, obviously he passed away? Like that must have been crushing yeah. for you. And we and we would keep in touch. Um, you know, I it's, it's actually one of like my hugest like regrets too is and i feel like i learned a lot um in chris's death is that we would keep in touch you know i would email him and ask him advice on things like we were t- last time we talked was about martin guitars because he always plays martin i just got myself a martin um and he even <sighs> like one of the last emails he sent to me was like hey if you ever want to like um write songs together like let me know and i was like holy shit like, that would be that'd be amazing i can't believe chris cornell's asking me like let's let's collaborate, you know, like that would be incredible. And I so regret not just like jumping on that, like the next day and just be like, it's sort of one of those things where it's like, you realize our time here is short and there's no uh, reason to yeah. hesitate and do, and do those kind of things. But he was one of those guys where it's like, if I would bug him about his voice, I'm like, Hey man, what do you do? Like, what's your trick? He'd be like, Oh, I, I don't think about it. I try not to think about it. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, damn you. And your perfect voice. Terrible so, answer. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. That just means you're like, a god among men that has this like these epic pipes that you know can't be slowed down because his voice was just Uh, i mean next level he was like 10 singers in 10 singers in one so that's crushing man that's yes right i always hate those answers where it's like oh come on man (laughs) well oh man well i won't take up too much of your time and i really appreciate you doing this and sorry for my lateness Um, oh no uh, I can't believe you're still like awake and up. Oh, I'm, I'm, and I'm good. I sat, I sat in the airport for, for five hours. I and, hate that. I hate that. Well, you know what? I like, so we're all there and everyone wants to go up. People get a coffee. Someone wants to yeah. get, you know, get some food, whatever. But we've and got, someone's got to watch the gear. We've got seven carts of gear, yeah. you know, and, and like, there's one point where I'm like, kind of, it's just me and like one other guy. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like we're in an airport, like there's sketchy people around. Like I'm Absolutely. watching people's backpacks, like so I'd love to take a nap, but I feel like mm. what happens if I'm sleeping and someone's like, you know, someone mm. gets stolen in the airport? So yeah. I, I didn't get a wink uh, of sleep, but no, I'm I'm doing that fine, is, man. I'm doing fine. Uh, um, that's good. But uh, I I gotta ask you, while I have you on the phone. Did Absolutely. you know that we met your father once at a UPS store? Oh, did you ever I hear the story? This. 
<laughs> yeah, wait, tell me it again. Well, we, yes. we were picking up like some CDs or something, like at ch- Chicago suburbs at a UPS store, mm-hmm. and we yeah. like came in, and <laughs> your your dad was like, uh, uh, oh, yeah, you guys are in a band? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my son's in a band, too. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, like what band? Thinking it's going to be like something we never heard right. of. And he's like, mm-hmm. and he's like, uh, oh yeah, no, uh, Tim from from Rise Against. We're like, oh shit, that's crazy. Yeah, no, we like we were on tour with them. Like, we told him everything. He's like, he goes, wait a second, wait here. And he goes to the back and he brings out a dolly that said Silverstein on it that we'd apparently left at a show. You guys picked it up and it somehow ended up at his work. <laughs> At the UPS store, and he returned it to us. That is so amazing. Isn't that the most incredible thing ever? We're like, oh yeah, we totally did leave that at like that last show, wherever it was, and like um, I want to say like Poughkeepsie, New York, like three years ago. That's hilarious. <laughs> that, and, I, and I bet you know what happened. I bet Juan probably used it for a long time, and then it eventually like ended up at his house, and he doesn't live far from where my dad owned that UPS store, so I probably just gravitated over there. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, really funny. Like it was covered, you know, in like the the free victory record stickers they gave us. Like we covered totally. covered in that dolly in it, and and I just thought that uh, that was such a funny little story. I had to I had to tell you. I don't know if you. That's great. You know, interesting trivia. That's the UPS store where Neil Hennessy from the Lawrence Arms. He worked there uh, all through uh, our high school lives because I would always go over there and visit him. Yeah, and like they would just be back there like watching free cable and stuff. Um, <laughs> and then my dad eventually bought it. And before he bought it, he would like interrogate Neil. I would like come home from school and he'd it'd be my dad and Neil at like the kitchen table. And my dad with like a pen and paper, like taking notes about how the business operates, you know? And I'm like, what are you guys doing? And why is dad, why is my friend here? And I'm not here, you know? And so he was, <laughs> eventually he would buy that place. And then, and then, and, and then the early days of rise against, you know, like, you know, like from working in bands, you, you tour with your band for many years before it makes any money at all. And so you're like, you're kind of like saving up money to go on tour. And, uh, the, the UPS store is where I would like end up with like in between to like try to get some hours and try yeah, to like sure. pay, pay my rent. So that's really funny that I, I remember that story. Uh, now how crazy random is that? I think you'd look good in those brown shorts. <laughs> I didn't have to wear brown shorts. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding, man. Uh, well, uh, I, uh, that's it, man. But the final cool. thing is uh, the song. What are we doing? What are we doing about the theme song? Are we keeping oh, it? Yeah, the th- are we are we changing it? Are we going with a new band? What do you what do you think? Right. What's your vibe? Oh man, I think you should go with a new band. Um, but I don't like. You, so okay. you need like you if need you like had a podcast. Cool, like, what would you what like what would really get you in the zone? Like you know every uh, every episode. Uh, Bed for the scraping by Fugazi. Okay. I don't well, know if you know that one, but like, cue it up after we got the phone. Oh, I'm queuing it, it up. Be a, I think it would be a great intro. It's funny. I'm I'm pretty well versed in Fugazi, but I'm not very good at the You'll names know of the songs. Song, you might, yeah, I, I'm yeah. not very good at the names of the songs. Totally. I'm not good at it. And they have so many weird names, you know? Yeah, exactly. Including, including that one. But you'll when you hear this one, you'll know this one. All right, man. Well, hey, there yeah. it is. We'll see. I, I better like it, man. Don't let me down. You, yeah. I know. I'm sorry. Sorry Tim, if you hate it. Dude, Tim, thanks so much. Have a great rest of the tour, and uh, yeah, you too. I'll see you around. Tell all the boys uh, hello, and have a good time out there. I will do. Cool. Thanks again, man. All right, Shane. Yeah, cheers. Bye. So there it is with my friend Tim. What a great conversation. What a great dude. Thanks so much, Tim, for doing this. 
And of course, I know that Fugazi song, Bed for the Scraping. I know it is. I don't want to be defeated. I don't want to be defeated. I don't want to be defeated. That's uh, the, the how I know it. I don't want to be defeated because eh, they got funny song titles. But hey, it looks like we got a new theme song. So thank you, Tim, for that. And hey, everybody, tune in next week. It's Halloween. I've got something very special for you. I don't want to spill the beans. Let's let's keep it a surprise. I promise it's going to be good. It's going to be really, really good. So make sure you're subscribed. And of course, feel free to get in touch. Syndrome at gmail.com. And of course, on any social media platform, we're on them all. Again, if you like the show, check out the Lead Singer Syndrome All Access Club. Again, the link, leadsingersyndrome.com slash all access. I will leave you with the tune. So many great Rise Against tunes. So many. But I'm going to play one of my favorites from Revolutions Per Minute. And we talk a little bit in the podcast about how the songs from when they were an indie band ended up becoming big hits. And this is one that I think could have been. Here is... Like the Angel by Rise Against on Lead Singer Syndrome. Peace and love. We'll see you next week. They took our lights down low. Instead of hiding.